Very happy to welcome you to Sunday service today here at Ananda Village and everywhere throughout the world. Uh, my name is Nayaswami Parvati, and this is Nayaswami Anandi, and we'll be, we're very happy to be here sharing these teachings with you. This first, what I will read, is Rays of the One Light, based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda, Bhagavad Gita, and Bible readings, written by Swami Kriyananda. This week's topic, What Was the Star of Bethlehem? Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. Divine vision is the opposite of worldly sight. Divine vision sees God's presence behind all outward appearances. Worldly sight sees appearances merely, coating even the blazing wisdom of a saint. A master to the worldly man is a human being with, perhaps, a slightly better attitude than the norm. The scriptures, therefore, strive to demonstrate how the divine consciousness, when openly active among men in the lives of great masters, must never be viewed as an expression of ordinary human consciousness. To seek the divine present, to seek the presence of divinity behind the life of a great master is to prepare oneself to recognize that same divinity also in lower manifestations until at last one beholds God everywhere. Thus it was that Paramhansa Yogananda on observing his new disciple, Swami Kriyananda, struggling with the contrast between the Guru's human appearance and his inner divine reality, looked at him deeply one day and said, If you only knew my consciousness. The story of the birth of Jesus Christ contains an account in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 2, of the Star of Bethlehem. The wise men who sought Jesus in his manger said, We have seen his star in the east, and lo, the star which they saw, which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. This account was important, for it showed all mankind that Jesus was a divine incarnation and no ordinary man that he brought divine consciousness to earth, even though he would play a human role among human beings, and that others, too, by receiving him in their inner hearts, would acquire power, as the Bible puts it, to become the sons of God. The scriptures enjoin us to meditate on the lives of great souls, that we may discover our own latent spiritual greatness as the Bhagavad Gita puts it in the fourth chapter, Who knows the truth touching my births on earth and my divine work? When he quits the flesh, puts on its load no more, falls no more down to earthly birth. To me he comes, dear Prince. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind.
It is a real joy to be here today. And I will um, we'll begin by reading from Whispers from Eternity, a book of prayers and poems by Paramahansa Yogananda. And this reading goes amazingly well with this, uh, the reading that Parvati just offered. Demand for opening of the spiritual eye, the eastern star of wisdom. Bless me, Father, that I behold the eastern star of wisdom. May it shine before my human eyes as much in daylight as in darkness. Long my eyes were blinded by the tinsel glitter of materiality. Seeing things always outwardly, I saw not the spirit behind and within them. I saw the mustard seed of matter, but spied not the oil of spirit that it contained. My third eye of wisdom is now opened. Oh, may it always be so. Let the gaze of my single eye of realization penetrate through every veil of matter to behold the infinite presence of Christ everywhere. Bless me that my sacred, wise thoughts, following the star of knowledge, lead me to the Christ in everything. Om. So this week's reading, I feel like I say this every week, but this week's reading is especially beautiful and deeply meaningful. The importance of looking to see divinity in the saints, since this is Christmas, looking to the divinity in Christ, in, in the spiritual teachers that come our way, but seeing that also as a way for us to open to the divinity in all of life in other people, and also in ourselves. Because as we focus on the littleness in others, we also focus on the littleness in ourselves. And as we focus in the greatness in others, we perceive that in ourselves. There's an old joke that I've always loved about a, a boy who said, When I was 17 years old, I was convinced that my father was a complete idiot. When I became 25 years old, I was so amazed at how much he had learned in just those eight years. (laughs) And of course, the, the humor in that comes from the fact that it's within ourselves that we see goodness, stupidity, angelic qualities, wisdom. It all depends on ourselves. There's an Indian saying that when a pickpocket looks at a saint, he sees only his pockets. And we could reverse that saying and say when a saint looks at a pickpocket, he sees only a potential saint. And that's what the, one of the things that the masters come to show us is that even though with their wisdom and their great intuition and understanding, they're much, much more capable of analyzing our flaws and and, uh, all of our shortcomings, that's not what they see. They focus only on the potential saint within us because truly that is much more real 
than those little things that seem so real. There's a couple of interesting stories from the life of Yogananda that are very poignant and beautiful, actually. Um, Because when a master comes, or a saint, or great soul of any kind, they have a lot of energy. And they are a threat to people of lesser energy. Uh, They tend to make a person think that they should be better, and that isn't what everyone wants to be. And so sometimes people of lesser energy will want to pull down the great people and criticize them. And so Yogananda faced a lot of criticism in his life, and one of them came from a man named Yogi Kagan, I believe it's pronounced. He was a, had been a disciple of Yogananda, but envy or something else like envy uh, pulled him away from the master. He probably felt, well, I'm an Indian, I'm a teacher, I'm just as good as him. And so he was teaching in, in America, in Phoenix, Arizona, and he had a large audience there with him. He was talking about spiritual things, and then he suddenly said, is anyone here in the audience a disciple of Yogananda? And several, many people actually stood up. They thought he was going to then speak about the master. And then he began to talk every critical thing you could say about Yogananda, to criticize him up and down and and really revile him and his work, his organization, and everything about him. And the disciples were really very, very put off by this and very offended. And so many of them called Yogananda and said, you know, this yogi is saying terrible things about you. And Yogananda said, oh, thank you very much for calling me. Don't think about it. I'll take care of it. So then he called Yogi Kagan. And what did he say? He said, I want to thank you for all the good you are doing in this country. I bless you and our line of masters bless you. And he was speaking from deep sincerity because to him that was true. He wasn't going to worry about the small details of negativity. When Swami um, met, our Swami Kriyananda met another man, um, Dr. Haridas Chaudhary, who is a very great soul who was teaching in the Bay Area. Dr. Haridas Chaudhary said to him, when I came to the United States from India, I found in the Indian community, lots of Indian people were saying negative criticisms about Yogananda. And I had never met him. So I listened, but I I didn't know. He said, then I met Yogananda. And I found that Yogananda had nothing but good to say about his critics. He said, and then I knew on what foot the shoe fit. (laughs) Obviously, Um, only goodness comes from those who live in tune with it. And they don't want to focus on negativity. And they're showing us that that should be our goal, not only in the world, but in looking at the saints. As Jesus Christ said, to to as many as received him, to to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. So what does that mean? How can we receive him if we're busy looking at his pockets? We have to receive him by attuning to the perfection within him. And as we do that, we we begin to feel more hope about our own perfection. We begin to actually experience 
more of our own perfection. I've noticed this just in being around, and I know many of us have, in being around Swami Kriyananda. It's not that it's not that you sit thinking, oh, what a wonderful soul he is. I mean, you do, but the more important impact is when you're around a person of greatness, you feel more joy, more love, and more hope for your own potential in their presence. And that's why the masters come. Not to have us be all agog at how wonderful they are, but to give us hope that we can become like them. Yesterday, I remembered um, a story that happened quite a long time ago, but I thought it might be instructive. Uh, It happened in 1981 when um, Bharat and I had just gotten together. Uh, He's my husband, for those who don't know him, and he does nature awareness workshops. And so we went to Washington State and were doing workshops coming down the coast, Washington State and Oregon. And when we'd finished a couple of weeks of that, we were driving home and we decided we'd take a break by stopping in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, He wanted to go to a used bookstore as sort of a celebration, and I wanted to pick up something at a department store. So we drove into the um, Chamber of Commerce, asked for instructions. They had a big map on the wall, and they said, okay, here's, you go here and here and here to this department store. It wasn't a mall. It was just like a city on a city street, just a small little building, Uh, this department store. And then you go here and here and here, and there's a used bookstore. And so they didn't give us a map, but it seemed pretty straightforward. So we, we went there and found the street. It was a one-way street uh, that the department store parking lot was on. And so Brad said, I'll be back here in 45 minutes. So fine. I went running in, got what I needed. And I came back out. I was a couple minutes late. So I just walked through the parking lot just to make sure that he wasn't parked in any of the places. It wasn't that big. And he wasn't. So I sat on a, a planter box as the one-way traffic was coming toward me. I thought, I don't have to think about a thing. I'll just sit here. It's a beautiful sunny day. I'll just meditate. And I began to practice the Hong Sa technique and watch my breath and just feel very, very internalized, very calm. And I was sitting there, and I was sitting there, and I was sitting there. And time was going by. And he hadn't showed up. It was maybe 20 minutes or something like that. And as I sat in this place of great calmness and interiorization, practicing Hong Sa, suddenly I felt like a tunnel open up here to my right, a doorway. And it was a tunnel of fear, a potential fear. Because in those days, we didn't have a credit card in 1981. I had in my pocket a driver's license and $10. And I didn't know where Bharat was, and he didn't know where I was, and he didn't know anything about Eugene, Oregon, nor did I. And I thought, huh, this is interesting. But what was interesting was I could see it as a doorway of what if, what then, how will I cope, what will happen. And I just thought, you know what? I don't want to go down that doorway. I don't want to go down that tunnel. I've been there before, I know that tunnel. I'll just stay here in peace, and I won't worry about a thing. I have nothing to worry about. I'll just continue to, to watch my breath. And so that's what I did. I went back to inner peace. And every now and then the tunnel would, because time was continuing to pass, and <laughs> the tunnel would kind of call to me, and I'd go, no, I'm, not, I'm choosing to stay connected I, in inner peace. 
And then suddenly, after it had been about 45 minutes, 50 minutes, another tunnel opened up. This was anger. (laughs) I thought, you know, this is really rude. Here I am. He's probably, I know he loves used bookstores. I mean, he is in that used bookstore and, you know, da-da-da-da. Well, you can hear. I mean, you know, I knew the whole... I, I knew what, what that tunnel was and, it, and how it said and what it was going to say and the whole spiel. And I just said, you know what? I'm not going there. I want to just keep staying in the present moment. And I'm going to continue to do that. I'm going to give myself an hour and a half. And, you know, after that, I might decide to get into fear. I might decide to get in anger. But for right now, I'm just going to stick with connecting with inner peace and so time went by and time went by. And I just, I felt like I was fending off, you know. It was, a, you know, in, the, in terms of world peace and all the huge things in the world that are going on, it was a kind of a very, very small battle. But still, it needed to be fought. And it was what God was giving me to fight right then. And so I just was fending it off and fending it off and staying centered by focusing in the moment. So meanwhile, two streets over, on another one-way street, Barad had come back to the car a few minutes late. He had his little books, and he sat in the car, and he, he thought, well, you know what? I'm in the right place. She's not here yet, but I know women, they like to shop. And so <laughs> I'll just sit here, and I'll read my books, and all is well, because I'm just, you know, I have, I'm in good shape here. I'm in the right place at the right time. And... When she comes, I'll be fine. So he's just reading his books and reading his book, and time's going by, and he's getting hungry. So he decides to get up and go get some lunch, and gets lunch for both of us. And when he's coming back to the car, he's like looking at things. And he's thinking, you know, the trees on this street don't look like what I remember the trees on that street. And then he's sort of putting together the fact that I'm also not there. And he, he thinks this through a little bit more, and he kind of drives up and around, and you know, about an hour and a half later, comes driving down the street, opens the car door. Hi, I brought you some lunch. And it, it was such a great feeling because I felt like, hi, good to see you. No anger, no fear. We didn't have to go there. You know, we had the choice. And so what, what it was made, because yesterday I was thinking, now why did this come to me today? But but we have really only one choice in life. You know, we think we have choice about our health. Those of us who are old enough realize after watching how that goes, we have no choice about that. Our wealth, our jobs, all that. No, we really have no choice. We have no control over any of that. But we do have control over our intention. What is my intention? My intention is to keep my consciousness high. And that's what I'm going to do. And whether I'm going to do it by tuning in to the people around me on the level of divinity, or do I want to tune into, oh, this flaw and that flaw? Do I want to look at the saints in terms of what I think they're missing or why they're wrong or whatever? Or do I want to try to tune into the divinity that, that they are expressing that's much deeper even than the beautiful words, much deeper than the great techniques or the, or the wisdom that they bring is a vibration of God's presence. And let me try to feel that in the saint 
And surprisingly, as I do that, I begin to feel it more in myself. As I feel it more in myself, I also feel it more in other people. Yesterday I was reading um, The New Path. I opened it to a very, again, powerful story of a time that Swami went through a very big test in his life. He, when he came to Yogananda, he didn't come with any doubts He felt that this man would lead him to God and he was just completely there. About a year went by and Yogananda invited Swami to join him at his desert retreat in 29 Palms. Yogananda had a house there. There was a house there for the monks. And Yogananda said to Swami, I was asking Divine Mother who I should take with me on this retreat. And he said, your face kept popping up. So he invited Swami to join him. And for several days, Swami would go over to the master's retreat and listen to him dictate very inspiring works on the Bhagavad Gita. But then Yogananda sent him back to the monk's retreat and gave him a kind of a very confusing, impossible job in terms of editing his articles uh, that he'd written so far in the Gita. And as Swami began to get into these, first of all, he was very sad that he couldn't be nearer to Yogananda. He was trying to read these, trying to figure out what to do. And they were really a mess. And he didn't realize that how Yogananda wrote was he just dictated and somebody else typed it up and somebody else edited it. And and he never actually looked at it again. He was busy starting centers, training disciples, writing lots of things, music, counseling. He was very, very busy. And so he would just send the teachings out and hope for the best that that somebody who's supposed to be an editor could edit it. Well, they were really a mess. And as Swami was reading them, this nagging thought came into his mind, maybe Yogananda lacks wisdom. And he said, I didn't want it. I was just fighting it like crazy, but it was, it had a power of its own. Negativity is very, very powerful. And he just he just felt like, he said, I felt like there was two boxers inside my head and they were just fighting each other. You know, Yogananda lacks wisdom. No, no, he's my guru. No, he's fighting and fighting. And, and he, he really couldn't pull himself out of it. Every now and then Yogananda would send him a, a letter. How's the editing going? I hope you're doing fast work. He didn't even understand what he was supposed to be doing and he didn't know how to do it quickly. And he was very, very confused. And One day during that time, his parents came for a visit. Now his parents were Episcopalians, well-to-do, father a scientist from the East Coast. And they came out to find Swami had joined this religious community. He now had a little beard. Nobody in the 1950s had a beard. Um, Except for, you know, anyway, well, we won't go there, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was very, very rare. And his father was just, you know, he didn't like the beard. He didn't like this kooky yoga stuff. He just didn't agree with any of the beliefs that Swami was holding so precious to his heart. And they spent some time together, he and his parents. And, and um, he said, I would have thought that with all my confusion that I felt and the tests that I was going through, that being with my parents would have been a very bad thing to do because here they were putting down the spiritual work. But he said, actually, it was my saving grace because I realized that even though we disagreed philosophically on just about everything, 
we loved each other. And he began to feel and tune in to that deeper level of himself of love. And he realized that he never could pull himself out of doubt through the intellect. But living on the deeper level of love, which he had very strongly for his guru, his doubts were completely gone. As we've said, you know, you can't beat out the darkness with a stick, but turn on the light and the darkness vanishes as if it were never there. And that's what happened. He just turned on the light of love and the doubts were not real. They just vanished. There was nothing to say about them. Later in the process, he discovered how Yogananda wrote and where the mistakes came from. It wasn't important. At that point, he just knew. And those kind of tests come to all of us in our own special way, in our own unique way to help flush out the negativity that has to come out. We have to release it. We have to be free of it. So we want to know that that's part of the journey. Negativity is going to come. The doubt's going to come. The criticism of others, the criticism of ourselves is going to come. But not to hang on to it. Just let it flow. If you've ever been for a walk and you've had a little pebble in your shoe, you know how your mind can like zero in on the pebble, even if you're surrounded by redwood trees or whatever. And then when you go to take off your shoe and empty the pebble, it's like this big. And it's the same with ourselves and our faults or the masters and what we, or the saints and what we perceive as their faults. We are all so much bigger than we can imagine. A friend recently told me a story that she experienced in the passing of her mother. Her mother was a spiritual person, deeply devoted to God. And when she found out she had a fatal illness, she was not concerned. She just said, this body is a shell. And she and her daughter spent some months together during this last period of her life. The daughter was staying in the room with her. And it was very uplifting and joyful. And then the mother passed away. And the daughter said, I was still spending the night in her room that night. And I thought, how will it be? I've spent all my time looking over and she's been there. And now she's not there. And she said, that night, there was a gigantic presence in the room. A gigantic presence of love and joy. And she just laughed and laughed. And she said, mother, you're so right. It was just a shell. And she felt... The littleness of that shell was gone and the soul expanded and expanded beyond imagination. And I've been meditating on that story and I would recommend meditating on it because your soul is no different than that woman's soul. It is gigantic and it is perfect and it is filled with love. And when the masters look at us, when the saints look at us, they don't see those little tiny pebbles in your shoe, the little tiny faults that seem so large and looming. They see this gigantic potential. Swami Kriyananda said something very, again, important. And I'd like to close with this. He said, Bliss is no mere mental concept. Bliss 
is the essence of God. We should not pray for bliss. We should pray with bliss. And so I'd like to end the service this morning just by us taking a moment to close our eyes and relax into your heart center, relax into your spiritual eye and look there in an open and receptive way for the presence of bliss within you. And as you feel a touch of that bliss, begin to realize that it is in every person around you, that it is not only the essence of God, it is the essence of yourself, and it is the essence of every single being on the planet.